Matthew chapter 7, 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye? When there's the log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Well, it seems that nothing upsets the independent American persona more than to have someone else make a judgment about their actions, about their appearance, or about their beliefs. Our culture, whatever it may have once been, is now dominated by the mindset that I and I alone have the right to determine what is right and wrong. That I alone get to determine what is good and acceptable for me. That nobody else has the right to impress upon me their opinions and their beliefs. At least that is what people say while they are simultaneously forcing their beliefs down upon you. Last week, we, uh, we began to look at what Christ taught about judging one another in the Sermon on the Mount. I mentioned that I believe the first part of Matthew 7.1 is the favorite verse of God-hating pagans. Judge not. That sentiment, or at least what is attributed to it by those who do not know better, have not been taught better, or who are simply just not honest is at the core of what it means to be an individual in our Western, postmodern, post-Christian culture. The greatest sin in the culture we live in is to say that any one thing is right at the expense of everything else. It is said that to judge is to hate. To believe that anything is true absolutely for everyone is to hate. It may very well be said of our nation, just as it was said of Israel in the time of the judges, that every man does what is right in his own eyes. Nothing good will result when an entire nation has gone the way of the fool. As Solomon said in Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. People have run so far from God's natural law, from reason that was built and written on our hearts, they now believe that if you do do not agree with someone, if you do not endorse somebody's chosen lifestyle, according to their narrative, no matter how silly or perverse that chosen lifestyle may be, that if you do not endorse it and celebrate it, you deny their existence and you commit violence against them. Well, I guess from one perspective, that last part may be right. If the foundation of what they believe about themselves is built on such unstable and shifting sand then the truth will act as a sort of storm of violence against their fragile illusion. Of course, to point out what is even extreme folly or perversion, to point that out, to see it for what it is, is to cast judgment. It is to evaluate what we see and test it against what we know to be true. It is to realize that something is both dangerous and foolish to the one who is deceived, and then to labor to shatter that carefully constructed illusion. When we shatter that carefully constructed illusion, we are being both merciful and loving, but we are judging. And of course, Jesus did not forbid all forms of judgment. We looked at that last week, that the consistent testimony of Scripture is that we are to be a discerning and judging people. Jesus simply condemned the kind of judgment that is rank with hypocrisy. And the Pharisees were prime examples of that kind of 
hypocritical judging. As he had been doing throughout the entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus had been showing his disciples with case after case that even though they had been taught to follow the lead of the Pharisees, even though they had been taught to believe that the Pharisees were the epitome of faithfulness and piety, that they had to open their eyes, they had to see the Pharisees in a new light, to see them for what they were, and then to reject their teaching, to reject their leaven, and to follow the call of the Messiah. So I invite you to join me in prayer before we once again turn to the beginning of Matthew chapter 7. Father, we ask that you would open our ears to hear what is true. We ask that you would expose areas of sin in our lives, expose things that might be planks in our eye. Make us willing to see where we are in error, where we are in sin. Make us humble enough to repent, to hate the sin, to turn to Christ. Father, make us faithful through the hearing of the word by the work of your spirit. Make reason and truth more beautiful to us. The sure foundation under our feet that they provide more desirous to us, to us than anything the world has to offer, than anything that are the illusions that we might want to construct could possibly provide for us. Let us see clearly. Let us respond faithfully. Let us see the joy that you have set before us. Pray things in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Now the theme of judgment flows throughout the entire chapter 7 of Matthew's Gospel. Just as we have discussed before, the theme of judgment flows through the entire Gospel of Matthew. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven brought real, tangible, permanent, ever-growing change in this world. Its arrival meant that the reign of the king of heaven had begun on this earth. That he came to conquer. Christ came to conquer as king, even though that victory would first be achieved by his suffering as one of us and dying in our place. Things would change. Things had changed. Just simply by the Son of God taking on flesh and walking among us, things had changed that could never be undone. Actions, beliefs, and the institutions of men would be evaluated and weighed. Judgment was soon to come down upon those who rejected the arrival of the kingdom of heaven and the ruling of God that it represented. Judgment hung over the heads of the people like an executioner's axe, just waiting to be released so that it might do its work. It's in this context that Jesus labored repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Matthew to teach his disciples to see what was before them, to understand what was happening in the world, to evaluate their hearts, their motives, and then to guard themselves against the wickedness around them, those wicked who were in revolt against the arrival of the king who had finally come to his own. It's in that context that Jesus called his disciples, he called all who would have ears to hear to a radical obedience, to reject the teachings and the traditions of those who they had previously thought were their leaders in light of the new reality in which they found themselves. This, this new reality that began with the arrival of the kingdom. In our immediate context, Jesus warned those around that they were not to judge. Of course, we discussed that command last week in Matthew chapter 7, 1 and 2. We need to remember what that command meant in its context. 
Jesus' disciples were not to judge as the hypocrites judged. They must not use different weights and measures for how they evaluate themselves and their own standing before God and how they evaluate everybody else. Being hypercritical of everyone else, finding every small kind of thing that they could pick at, everything that they could criticize, everything that they could belittle somebody over, while at the same time, they're giving themselves the most generous possible treatments. Christ's disciples must not have an eager eye, be it out of curiosity or of malicious intent. They must not have an eager eye to find fault in others. They must not delight to find fault in others. So Christ's disciples must not judge like that. And following that in our passage before us today in verses 3 through 5, Jesus warned his disciples that they must look inward before they can presume to look outward. Only when one has rightly judged and understood themselves, their perspective, their motivations, their intentions, their attitude, their prejudices, their, their presuppositions, only when they have understood themselves could they trust the judgments that they might make about anybody else? Well, later in verse 6, that we will Lord willing be covering next week, Jesus called on his disciples to rightly judge the condition of those that were around them. To judge and see who was ready, who was worthy of the message and the hope of the gospel of the kingdom. They needed to know where they ought to invest their time and their energy and whom to entrust with the precious treasures of the kingdom. One commentator wrote that when taken together, verses 1 through 5 and verse 6 become something of a gospel analog to the proverb, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. So in these first six verses of this chapter, Jesus moved from warning about hypocritical judgment to illustrating the absurdity of focusing on comparatively small issues in other people, all while ignoring major issues in ourselves. And he moved from there into instructions on how to judge who was worthy of the time and resources of the kingdom. Of course, there is more to follow just in this chapter of Matthew as we draw near to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 15, Jesus warned his disciples to beware of false messengers from God, to beware of the false prophets. And he gave them criteria by which they could judge a prophet, to judge somebody who said that they speak for God, to be able to test, are they genuine? Are they from God or are they, or all, are they false? He taught them to make judgments concerning those who would speak for God. Following that in verses 21 through 23, Jesus warned his disciples about facing God on his judgment throne. These disciples needed to be shown the right way. They needed to be taught how to believe and how they were to live, to be able to make judgments about themselves and others, because judgment was indeed coming. Final and eternal judgment was coming. Christians need to be able to see clearly to make judgments about the things that they face in this world because what we do and what we believe in this life matters. What we do and what we, be what we believe carries eternal consequences. It is not enough to simply claim the name of Christ. It is not enough to simply call yourself a Christian. As we will see later on in this chapter, there will be those in the great day of judgment who will have claimed the name of Christ. There will be those who called out to him, Lord, Lord. There will be those who even cast out demons in the name of Christ, along with performing mighty works. And yet they will be cast out as workers of lawlessness because they were never known by the king. That is truly a frightening passage. 
One that demands that we understand how to see clearly. It demands that we understand how to judge. How to judge ourselves rightly. And then how to be able to help those around us. So this chapter 7 of Matthew begins with instruction on making judgments. And it culminates with judgment. And then in verses 24 through 27, it'll end with the picture of the different fates of those who have judged rightly and built their foundation on a rock and those who chose poorly, who had poor judgment and built upon the shifting and ever-changing sands of the beliefs and institutions of this world. And only one will be left standing when the storm came. Well, let's draw our attention back to our specific passage for this morning, remembering its place within this larger context, both within chapter 7 of Matthew, within the Sermon on the Mount, and within the Gospel as a whole. So read with me once again, verses 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We must not miss the ridiculousness of the picture that Jesus is painting for us in this passage this morning. Essentially, what Jesus is describing is two people, one of whom has a single piece of sawdust or a little wood shaving caught in his eye. The other has a large beam sticking out of his eye. This is meant to sound ridiculous. This is designed to sound comical, but it does so for a purpose. I don't think we are stretching this context too far to assume that in the mind of Christ, these elements came, in, came to him and were easy for him to use to describe because he grew up in a carpenter's shop. As most of us do who have done much woodworking, Jesus probably knew what it was like to have a wood shaving or a piece of sawdust caught between your eye and your eyelid. If you have ever experienced it, you know that it is annoying and it is painful. It can be very difficult to be able to find and remove. It can cause real damage to the eye if it is not taken care of. The speck or the, the splinter, the little wood shaving, was the smallest fragment of wood that you would have found in a, in a carpenter's shop. As such, it is used to illustrate one extreme spectrum in this picture that Jesus painted for his disciples. And on the other end would be the log. The word translated here as log is speaking of a big timber beam. The kind of massive piece of wood that might be used to support a large structure. You can imagine that this beam, this log, would be the largest piece of prepared wood that a carpenter might have in his shop. The largest kind of section of wood that would be used in construction. So the picture we are given here by Jesus is of the smallest and the biggest pieces of wood that a person could expect to find in a carpenter's shop. In the little story that Jesus gave, both of these pieces are stuck in somebody's eye. The speck, something that might be commonly experienced, though a nuisance and potentially dangerous and destructive. The log, on the other hand, is meant to sound absurd, though it can be understood in relation to the speck. You can't fathom what the log and the purpose of saying a log in the eye is without understanding the irritation, the frustration that comes from a speck. What troubles the smallest things, the largest will bring a thousandfold. It may not be physical for this large beam of wood, wood to actually be lodged in somebody's eye, at least not in a way that they can survive. 
Yet it is possible for the kind of major, deep, inset sin, this destructive force, to blindingly apply itself into someone's life. That is possible. That is the imagery. That's what the imagery is designed to illustrate. What the Pharisees and those who were like them were guilty of in their judgmental attitudes was every bit as foolish, was every bit as absurd as a man with a big log in his eye trying to pick out the speck of sawdust in the eye of someone else. I think it not too inappropriate to to picture this as though some old-time Saturday morning cartoon of a man with, with his massive beam sticking out of his eye, trying to strain and twist and look every which way just to catch a glimpse of his brother. And in the midst of this awkward and silly dance that he does with his beam sticking out of his eye, you catch a smile across his face as he found an excuse to be able to point out something that was bothering his brother. That he, he gets a sense of joy and glee to be able to find the little tiny speck that the camera has to zoom in on to be able to actually see in his brother's eye. Yet this man with the beam is glowing because he found something to fault in his brother. This image is supposed to seem far-fetched. It's supposed to seem a little silly or absurd. How can the man with the beam in his eye, even if it were physically possible for that to be there, how could he not know that the beam was there? Or if he did know that the beam was in his eye, how could he think that he was possibly in a position to look for a speck in someone else's eye? Even if one of his eyes was free from an obstacle, how hard would he have to work to try and position himself where he might catch a glimpse of his, of his brother's eye, much less find the ability to be able to do something about it. When Jesus asked the question, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Of course, that is a great question. What drives men to look for specks in the eyes of others. Why would someone act like a hypocrite with a giant beam in their eye, straining so that they could even find some relatively minor fault in those around them? Well, what drives us to search out even these small, difficult to spot kind of failings in other people's lives, all the while ignoring the obvious and major failings in our own. How deceived, how arrogant and spiteful must a person be to be guilty of such a gross and indefensible oversight. The painful truth is that we all too easily fall into this kind of hypocrisy. Calvin posited that within the natural man, there lies a perverse kind of curiosity that finds pleasure in exposing the faults and struggles of others. That somehow because of the fall, because of the curse of sin and the stain that it has made over everything, that it is now built into us, That it isn't even always a desire to make a big deal, to make a public shame of the issue. We just feel the need. We can't help ourselves. We want to look and examine, to be able to find something wrong with everybody around us. We all like to feel good about ourselves. And there are different ways that we might go about fulfilling that desire. Of course, most of those ways are sinful and destructive. One way we try to feel better about ourselves is to lower the standard by which we judge ourselves. The end of this practice is that you set yourself against no standard whatsoever. 
that you begin to determine what is good, what is evil, simply by how it makes you feel in that moment. Whereas this is largely what our culture has done. And in the process, it has created masses of people who have become sort of a god unto themselves, answerable only to their own emotions. Or more rightly said, slave to their own emotions. Of course, that is not appropriate for the follower of Christ. Another way people try to make themselves feel better about themselves is to adopt a standard and then try to make sure that everybody else fails a little bit more at it than you do. As much of what the Pharisees were guilty of. The context of our comical little story comes out of that. This drives people to ignore, to minimize, to trivialize and hide their own faults all while exposing as many faults as possible in everyone around them, so that by their arbitrary standard, they are elevated and everybody else is pushed down. Well, clearly this is also not an acceptable practice for the followers of Christ. This kind of self-esteem building practice is every bit as absurd as the man with a beam sticking out of his eye choosing instead to worry about the speck in his brothers. Well, the man who judges himself generously, while at the same time being hypercritical of everybody else around him, that man is a self-righteous man. He is a hypocrite. He doesn't use the same standard for judging himself that he binds everybody else to. His judgment has already been pronounced. And the man with the beam in his eye in our story this morning is an apt caricature of that self-righteous hypocrite. And we rightly call him deceived, petty, and foolish. Do not be like that wicked man, or you will share his fate. There are several reasons, if we press this image a little bit farther, why it is dangerous and destructive for a man with a beam in his eye to try and remove the speck in someone else's eye. Even if the heart of the man with the beam in his eye was to try to help his brother with the irritation from the speck, even if, in context, I think would tell us that's not his intention, but even if it was, there is no way that he could actually be helpful. When something is obstructing your vision, you can't have a clear picture about what you are looking at. As such, you have a drastically reduced ability to handle what you cannot clearly see. In that situation, when you are, your vision is obstructed by the beam in your eye, it is not wisdom, it is not love that drives you to meddle in the lives of others. It's pride. You meddle with other people's lives. You, you search for faults in their lives, ultimately in that state, because you care more about pointing out other people's problems. You care more about tearing other people down than you care for the state of your own soul. There is no love. There is no truth in that. Well, let's, let, let's dig a little bit deeper in this picture that Jesus painted for us and see if we can better flush this out. First, with a beam in your eye, you cannot really tell what you're looking at. The beam represents deeply set, firmly held sin in a person's life. Specifically in this context, it represents the hypocrisy of judging with unbalanced scales of being generous to yourself and very critical and demeaning towards others in your evaluation. As we've said, this is the heart of self-righteousness. 
When our spiritual vision is blocked or clouded or seriously hindered by enduring sin, we have no real way of actually discerning accurately what we are seeing. We imagine we see something, but we put add pieces to it from our own minds. We have a partial picture and we, we try to add detail from what comes from within us and within our hearts. It would be ridiculous for a man with a log in his eye to think that he can say, see clearly to take a speck out of someone else's. It is equally ridiculous for a person with deep, deep, rooted sin, unrepented sin in their lives to think that they could see and discern the sin that is in someone else's life, to be able to determine what is actually sinful and what is simply a matter of conscience. They have no way of being able to tell that in someone else's life. Just by way of a few examples, how could a man blinded by jealousy, self-loathing, and bitterness think he is in any condition to judge the motives or the actions of other men? His anger and his paranoia will color and distort everything that he sees. And he will assume that the same kind of darkness that motivates him, that causes him to act out of fear or loathing or jealousy, he will assume that same kind of motive affects and drives everybody else. And he will think that all other men around him are just aiming to usurp him or to belittle him or patronize him. Or how can a woman who is held captive by the need to manipulate and control by harsh words and by gossip, how can she possibly think that she is in any condition to see clearly? She will assume that other women are working at the same game of manipulation that she is playing. She will assume the worst of what everything, anybody else says. She will never give the benefit of the doubt. The blackness of her own heart will act as shaded lenses and will color everything in her world. Or how can a man enslaved by lust think he is in any condition to tell what is appropriate between other people? Everything will be shaded by his appetites. Everything will, everything will seem sexual around him. He is in no position to judge what is proper, to judge what is modest, or what is pleasing to God. Because his bondage will project his greatest fears or his most depraved desires into every relationship in his life. Beloved, there is a reason that scripture warns us against sin. There's a reason it warns us against sin with such frequency and with such strong terms. Sin has the ability to overwhelm, to consume, to kill. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we see things. It changes the way we evaluate and interact with others. Sin is not something that can be toyed with. It isn't safe, even in small doses. We have all seen this kind of blindness color the vision of people around us. We've all experienced times where it has colored our own vision. Deep and long-set sin robs us of clear vision and discernment, and it paints everything in our world in grotesque, and destructive colors. Everything looks ugly when someone is caught in the mud and the filth of sin. Whether or not they are aware of their predicament. As long as that log remains in a person's eye, it will often it remains there far too long before they realize it or before they admit it or before they are made willing to do something about it. And as long as it is there, they will not see clearly. They will not rightly judge what is before them. Second, even if you somehow could see what is before you, when you have a beam in your eye, you are in no position to help your brother who has a speck. 
If your spiritual vision is blinded and distorted by your own sin, even if you could somehow rightly discern that there is something wrong in the life of your brother, you are in no position to be able to help them. The eye is a very sensitive organ. We all know how painful it can be even to get a speck trapped there, even to get one of our own eyelashes stuck in our eye. It sits, scratches, and irritates every time you blink, every time you move. Think of how precise a doctor must be to work around an eye. Think of how much equipment and skill are needed to be able to manipulate the eye. Think of how much damage will be done if a blind man or a man with clouded and obstructed vision began tearing at the eye, trying to remove some kind of small obstruction or speck that he believes to be there. Even if there's a piece of sawdust or a splinter that does pose a real threat of doing damage to the eye, that man with clouded vision or who is blind would be in no position to do anything about it since he is not able to clearly see and discern both the problem and the cure. Dealing with sin in the lives of those around us, though it is commanded in Scripture and necessary, is also a very delicate and sensitive operation. If we are not able to clearly see what is before us, we will hurt and we will destroy as we seek to tear at the problem. If we do so for the wrong reasons... We will then cause greater damage to ourselves and the other person, which leads us to our next point. Third, we must remember that everything we do as followers of Christ must be done, must flow out of faith and love. When Jesus told his disciples that the world around them would be able to tell they were his disciples, was it because they would witness the way that these men would push one another down as they tried to prop themselves up? Is that the way that Jesus said the world would know that you are my disciples by the way that you bicker and tear at one another? No? John 13, 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, so also you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Love seeks the good of the one who is loved. Love desires the beloved to be fulfilled, to be complete, to be at peace, to have joy. Godly love knows that a true person's good, a a person's true good, their ultimate good, their ultimate fulfillment and happiness is found only in Christ. And it's found only in obedience to Christ, only in being more like Christ. So love judges right from wrong. It really does. It corrects error to restore faithfulness for the good of the beloved. So love seeks to build up and to restore, never to tear down or destroy. If our motive is love, and we can see clearly, then we can help our brother with a speck in his eye. When we have a beam in our eye, we are not acting out of love. Anything we may try to do to help our brother, while deep-set sin and rebellion remains in our life, blinding our eyes, comes from a position of arrogance and foolishness, not out of love. It is done then out of the hypocrisy of our hearts, not out of the overflow of God's love within us. And it reveals self-righteousness, not a reliance on the righteousness of Christ. Well, we have all been guilty of this kind of hypocrisy at one point in our life or another. Some of us may even be living right now in this kind of destructive pattern. Though I pray that it is not the case among those of us in this church. 
The question then is, how do we keep ourselves from this kind of hypocrisy? And if we discover that we are already fallen into this kind of hypocrisy, how do we get out of it? Jesus gives us the answer in our passage this morning. He says, first, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what is the cure for having a massive beam sticking out of your eye? Take it out of your eye. There is great hope in this statement. There is grace in that pronouncement from Christ. The log does not have to be a permanent fixture in your eye. You are not doomed to that fate if you realize that you are caught up in hypocrisy of the heart and the judgment of others. Jesus said it is possible for the log to be removed. And clear vision can be restored. That is an incredible statement of hope and promise. No matter how spiritually blind we may be by the sin in our lives, it is possible for us to see clearly once more. Remember, one of the ways the scripture talks about our salvation is that we who were once blind are now able to see. There is no greater blindness than the blindness that keeps us from seeing and savoring Christ. There is no greater blindness than that which consumes the unbeliever. Yet by grace, the unbeliever is able to see and to see Clearly, by grace, the distorted and clouded vision of the sin-beset believer can be made once again whole. If you do not want to be a hypocrite, you do not want to judge like the hypocrite judges, then we must deal with our own sin before we give any thought to dealing with the sins of others. Before we can deal with the sin in our lives, we must recognize that we have sin in our lives. We must be honest with ourselves. We must look inwardly. We must invite God to look deep within us and to reveal anything within us that is against his holy nature. We must be willing to bring to light the idols and the snares of our lives that plague us. We must want Christ more than we want our sin. How often is this not true in our lives? How often do we desire our sin or we desire simply to remain in the status quo more than we desire Christ, more than we desire greater holiness in our lives? Beloved, if Christ is not sweeter and more precious to you, than all of your sin, than all of the things of this world, you will never see victory and your vision will never become clear. So are we brave and honest enough to admit what truly holds the highest place in our hearts? And if it is not Christ that holds the highest place in our heart, to then weep and repent to do whatever it takes to destroy the idols in our lives that usurp the one and only place of our Lord and Savior. And to do so with all the vigor and energy that we can muster, knowing that our immortal soul hangs in the balance. If Christ is your greatest treasure, then love him and value him by removing all those things in your life that do not give honor to him and that compete with him for supremacy in our hearts and minds. Remove the log in your eye and then search deeper and remove any specks that are in your eye. Pray that God would re reveal your failings and give you the grace to overcome them. So if you would keep from being the hypocrite, then you must remove the log from your eye. There's one more thing that Jesus makes clear in this passage. God is concerned both with the log and the speck. Jesus does not tell the crowd, who are you to judge anyone else? You all have logs in your eyes. Be concerned only with yourself. No, he didn't say that. What did he say? 
He said that when you have taken the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus desires that the speck in your brother's eye is removed. He wants you to help your brother overcome sin. He simply says that you cannot do it until you are able to see clearly, until you have dealt with the open sin that you know is in your own life. No matter how hard we try to object about our, be objective about our lives, no matter how careful we try to be in our lives, we will never in this life be able to perfectly separate our sinful motives and desires from our actions. Sometimes that will mean that we act out of some self-justified error. And sometimes that will mean that we had no intention of committing an offense against another person, yet we gave offense nonetheless. If we are truly concerned with living faithful, God-pleasing, Christ-like lives, then we need one another. We need each other because we need someone else to look into our lives, to look into our eye, and to be able to point out our blind spots. No matter how clearly we can see, as long as we are weighed down by this flesh, this body of death, we will have blind spots in our lives that will keep us from seeing what may be clear to those who are around us. That is a big part of why we are called to to be in fellowship in Christian communities. That's a part of why we covenant one with another in the local church so that we can build each other up, so that we can sharpen one another, help one another, expose error in one another, and then restore our brothers and sisters out of that error. There is wisdom and safety in the presence of many godly and righteous counselors. So when I have dealt with the sin that I can see in my own life, I need brothers in Christ to show me where I still need to grow, still need to be held accountable, still need to be made more like Christ, still need to repent of those things that I'm holding on to, even if I don't realize that they're in my grasp. I need them to love me enough to see the speck in my eye, to care enough about the discomfort that it is causing my soul, and help to take it away. Yes, God wants us to take the log out of our eye before we do anything else, but he also desires that we help one another with the specs. As Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, in Galatians 6, 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The church is meant to be a loving family. It's meant to be a place where there is love, support, and comfort. A loving family longs to see each other, longs to see the members of the family be godly, be healthy, and be fulfilled in their lives. We have been given the standard by which to live. And we have been given the standard that if we hold ourselves to it, it will give us life and joy and peace and fulfillment in abundance. So don't stop looking for those irritating and damaging specks in your brother's eye. Find them, remove them, give your brother peace and relief from the object that is foreign to his new nature in Christ. But do it with the right motivation to restore, not to condemn. And do it with a clear eye that is free from the distortion of unrepentant sin. Look inward judging faithfully over your own life and your own motivations, and then in the freedom that we have in Christ, look outward to help one another. You will be helped. They will be helped. And the world will see that we are Christ's disciples by the way that we have love one for another. Just one last thing I want to leave you with 
would consider helping your brother with a speck in his eye. Remember what you are judging when you confront your brother. We have been instructed to make judgments concerning the words, the actions, or the works, and the beliefs of others. We do not make the final and eternal pronouncement about them. We judge what they claim to believe, and we judge what they do and what they say. We judge what comes from them. That is a very different thing than judging, making a final judgment about that person or a, a value judgment about another person. It is different than making judgments about which people are better than others, have more value than others, or who are more deserving of love than others. So don't judge wrongly, and don't be fooled into believing that it is wrong to judge. God will judge the hearts and intentions of man. That is his judgment to make. He has given us the charge to judge the works, to judge what we can see, to judge a tree by its fruit. We are to do this as an act of love for our fellow man because we know what is at stake. It is not loving or merciful to withhold judgment when we have been given the standard and we are made aware of the consequences. So value your soul enough to look for the beam that may be in your eye, and then value your fellow men enough to point out the logs or the specks in theirs. Father, we pray for wisdom. We ask that you would make us faithful to this charge that you have given us, that we would not fall prey to one extreme or the other, either being hypercritical and, and seeking out new ways to judge or to pry into people's lives, but also not believing the lies of this world that we are not able to discern and to make judgments concerning the fruit that is in people's lives. Give us the right balance. Motivate us by our, our love for Christ our desire for personal holiness and our desire that those who are around us would know Christ, would obey Christ, would honor Christ and would find their joy and satisfaction in Christ. Make us bold, make us faithful, make us loving in Christ. Praise things in Jesus' name. Amen.